The British people have spoken. In the first December election since 1923, it's turned out to be a Christmas with all the trimmings for Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And I, of course, want to congratulate absolutely everybody involved in securing the biggest Conservative majority since the 1980s. Which, which, which was literally before many of you were born. While Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party are cruelly out in the cold. Obviously very sad at the result we've achieved and very sad at those colleagues that lost their seats in the election. But also I have pride in our manifesto and all the policies we put forward which actually had huge public support. Many said this was our most polarised, bitter, angry, dysfunctional, dishonest election in memory. So in the wake of this Tory triumph, this Labour drubbing, this Lib Dem humiliation, where do we go from here? With Britain now finally set to leave the EU on the 31st of January, we see our politics becoming even more tribal, even more divided. Are the populist movements of the right and left here to stay? Or have we perhaps passed the high watermark? Will things get better now? Welcome back to Polarised, the podcast from the RSA that's all about the big divides in our politics and our culture and how to fix them. I'm Ian Leslie. And I'm Matthew Taylor. And this week we're asking... Have we reached peak populism, or is this just the start of it? Later in the podcast, we'll be making sense of it all, if that's possible, with Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London, and Mercy Maroki, who is studying for a Master's in Social Policy at Jesus College, Oxford. She's also a Times columnist and an ardent young Conservative. She gave a very passionate speech about social mobility at the last Tory conference. Labour, look at me and say only they can unlock my potential. They want me to believe in Corbyn, the Messiah, not myself. That's not aspirational. That's just patronising. But before we hear from Mercy and Tim, it's time for our full disclosure segment. So I think I will grab this one, in, and I'm going to talk about my huge triumph, which is I've had the two most liked tweets that I have ever... I mean, I've been tweeting for years, 12 years or something. I've got the two most liked tweets ever. So Many congratulations. Shall I read them? Please do. And the one I posted four days ago read, the chances of Labour moderates winning back influence in the party are virtually zero. For the left, winning the election was an exciting fantasy, but controlling the party has always been the priority, and they will see the result as little more than a bump in the road. And then one that I did yesterday, which has got 377, and it's, you know, it's so exciting when you look at your phone, it's going up as you watch. And Shouldn't it get addicted to that, Matthew. It's no, very I know, dangerous. I know, I know, I know. It's, I've, let, I've put the bar in a particular place now, and it's like I won't tweet until I can think of something equally brilliant. But the second one, which I think you might have retweeted in, sorry, I said in my tweet, if this is already widely known, but William Hague's Tory policies polled higher than Labour's before the Blair landslide in 2001. For voters, it isn't so much about individual policies as overall credibility to govern. Now, the reason I did these tweets, which of course are brilliant, uh, is because I and many people like me, the kind of lost tribe of progressive centrists, 
are wondering whether or not now is the time to get back involved. You know, I run the RSA and in that regard, I'm politically independent. But as a private individual, should I be, as some of my friends are thinking about rejoining the Labour Party? Because now there is an opportunity after the Corbyn disaster to bring the party back into or start to move the party into the mainstream. Or is that a forlorn uh, effort? Well, it it doesn't seem like a big bet. So, So, I mean... It, I don't think it costs very much to, to join the Labour Three Party. Three quid, thanks to Ed Miliband. Right, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, Ed. So uh, why not just give it a go? So I think the reason is, you know, and it's not really relevant to me because I'm old and, you know, as I say, I run a charity, so I can't get politically involved particularly. But I think for the, the, the people I know who are thinking about it, it's a kind of psychic energy. You know, it's like, do you want to go into rooms once again with people who have very fixed views, who have a tendency to wear lots of badges, who absolutely believe that there was nothing at all wrong with Labour's policy platform in 2019. And it was only the three Bs of Brexit, the BBC and Blair, bizarrely, that led to Labour not winning. Do you really want to spend your and, time... And who will stay in the room long after... Who will stay in the room until three, or... three o'clock in the morning, absolutely. So I don't know. Look, you know, we need to move on. But I, I'm, I'm kind of quite interested in this because, you know, there are most people in the Labour Party are not headbangers. They are radical. They felt that the kind of Blair-Brown project was too centrist. And, you know, indeed, the world in some ways is more radical. You know, people on the right talk about inequality. Climate change is a massive issue. So in many ways, you know, there is a mood out there. And we'll talk to Mercy a bit later about neoliberalism and whether Boris Johnson is going to be a return to that or whether he's in a different place. So the world has shifted. So you would have thought that there's a possibility of something emerging here, which is more left-wing, of course, than the new Labour project. But yet... A party that does care about competence, that does reach out, that is inclusive, doesn't just stand on one riverbank screaming across the riverbank, I'm right, you're all wrong, swim over to us. Or, and this goes to our conversation later, in these polarised times, the centre-left, the progressive centre, is being mullered everywhere around the world. Maybe it's just not time and it would be silly to waste one's effort. After all, the Liberal Democrats are also in a terrible state. You know, the Greens in this country, unlike the Greens in Germany, aren't really centrist. They're kind of sub-Corbanite in their politics. So anyway, I don't know what the answer to this is, but many people who who put a lot of energy into politics are thinking this through right now. Well, in the wake of this election, we are here today to consider what's next. And uh, we've got some expert guests to help us talk that through. The the fundamental question we're asking is, as Matthew said, have we reached peak populism, if there is such a thing, or is this just the start of a kind of new wave in British politics? Joining us to discuss that are Tim Bale and Mercy Moroki. Let's start by just asking us to sort of define our terms. Perhaps I can start with you, Tim. What is populism? Well, populism really is a tendency to pit uh, the people against some kind of metropolitan uh, elite that has betrayed them and that moves towards political correctness rather than common sense when it comes to policy. You know, I can see you could apply that description to Boris Johnson's Tories. You you could apply it to Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party as well. How do those forms of populism compare to the populism uh, in other Western democracies, including European ones? Well, I mean, I I think obviously that both Corbyn and Johnson have been compared to populists in other countries, um, most obviously Trump and Johnson's case. In Corbyn's case, we're talking about 
left-wing populists like uh, Syriza, for example, in Greece, and Podemos in Spain. I mean, there certainly are some similarities there. I'd have to say that I think the comparison with Trump is a little bit overblown, except to the extent that I think Johnson does borrow frames and tropes that Trump will use. And to some extent, that gets to the heart of populism in the sense that it's often a style as it were, rather than something that is associated with particular policies. So it's very easy, for example, to call any effort to make immigration policy more restrictive, for example, populist. But that ain't necessarily so. It depends partly on how you actually frame why you're doing that and how you're doing that. And it seems to me that one of the interesting things here, Tim, is that I think kind of liberal centrists might have fondly imagined at some point in the past that it's all very well being a populist in opposition, but it's very different being in power. You know, as Mario Cuomo famously said, you know, we we campaign in poetry, we govern in prose. Uh, But yet what we've seen over recent years is a kind of new technology of populism in power. You know, whether it's Trump or Orban or Putin or going further back, Berlusconi. So what are the differences between campaign populism and governing populism? Well, no, I I think that's right. I mean, I think there was always a sort of comforting assumption that somehow once populist politicians got into power, they would drop that (laughs) sort of stuff and and actually begin to concentrate on governing. But you're right, all around uh, the globe, we've seen people come into government and actually not drop some of the framing and some of the tropes that they use. Another example would actually be India. It's not just, you know, Europe or the United States of America that this happens. I mean, I think when we're looking at Johnson, and particularly when he took over before the election... Some of the things he did clearly were actually pretty uh, populist in government. So, you know, pitting parliament versus the people to some extent, I think, you know, undermining the judiciary, uh, the attempt to prorogue parliament and the criticism of the judiciary when they, you know, fought back, as it were, against that. And now the BBC, I see, that which is going for your national broadcaster, that's a, that's pretty popular populist trope as well. Yeah, that's right. And there's a there's a great book by Levitsky and Ziblatt actually on how democracy dies. And and if you look at some of the things that uh, Johnson did uh, in the two months running up to the election, he actually ticked some of the boxes and the criteria that they use for that, which is clearly a little uh, bit worrying for some people. Yeah, OK. But, but you don't think that Boris Johnson, if I understand the piece you, you wrote at the weekend, you don't think he's outside of the mainstream of conservative leaders? No, because I suspect that what he was doing uh, for those two months was all about winning the election and all about in so doing, you know, moving towards the whole getting Brexit done thing. I'm not sure necessarily that that will set a pattern for the next five years. Um, however, as, as Matthew said, there are some worrying things that we've heard, you know, even in the last couple of days about what they want to do with the House of Lords, perhaps, what they want to do with the BBC, perhaps. But whether this is any more than kind of, you know, sabre rattling and, and to some extent a bit of triumphalism or whether it will actually dictate what Boris Johnson and the Conservative government does over the next five years, I'm a little bit more sceptical. To me, he seems not that far out of the kind of main run of, of Conservative Party leaders, except perhaps in, in the style. And then if you if you believe that populism is all about style rather than substance, then I guess you can call him a populist in that sense. But substance, I'm not so sure. Before Mercy. we Just before we get... I know we're going to bring Mercy in 
because no better person to, to give us an analysis of what Boris Johnson is going to be like as Prime Minister. But just one question before we do that. We've talked on this programme previously about polarisation and compared it, and one of the really interesting comparisons has been here in America, because in America, polarisation is bipartisan. You know, it's the two parties, and Democrats hate Republicans, Republicans hate Democrats, and it's getting worse and worse. Here, it's completely different. It's kaleidoscopic polarisation. The kaleidoscope is turned again, and now it's no longer North versus South, because the North is as conservative as it is Labour. Age has become a huge polarizer. London versus the rest. I'm just interested, how do you think the election result turns the polarization kaleidoscope? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think you're right to say that in America, it has sorted itself according to party. And that's not been so true of the UK. I do wonder, however, whether this election actually makes us slightly more like America in that respect, in that a lot of, for example, leave voters who have values that actually resonate um, quite well with conservative values, um, have shifted now over to the conservative camp. So it could be that that great sorting that we've seen in America is actually going on here as well. Mercy, how do you read this? What's your impression of Boris Johnson? Do you think he's going to govern as as a populist or, or do you see him as kind of part of the mainstream of, of conservative? Um, well, I think firstly, I think he's been very popular actually and he has kind of managed to mobilise um, I've noticed quite a lot of young Conservatives. And I think um, this has been reflected as well in the election results where we've had a lot of 20-year-olds um, being elected. So, um, for instance, we have Sarah Brickliffe, who's 24, Nicola Rich is 25, and Dahina Davidson, who's 26, all young women, young female I'm not, I'm not arguing. I mean, he's certainly popular. Yeah. He's just won a huge election result. Yeah, I agree with Tim to about the extent to which you can compare Boris and Trump in respect to them being populist leaders. I think the election result, because he's garnered so much of the working class votes, they're going to very much have to take consideration of this. So I think over the next few months and over the coming years, there's going to be a lot of strategy in regards to how they can appeal to the voters that they've just gained from northern working class communities. So I think it will change very much the way the Conservative Party looks and is governing. And if I read you correctly, effectively you're saying there'll, there'll be a leftward, if anything, a leftward turn from the Conservative Party versus a rightward. Yeah, I mean, to, to an extent, I think the right-leaning factions um, of the party, of the Conservative Party, which the ERG are kind of the figureheads for, I think, if anything, they might be emboldened because they'll say, well, you we went into the election promising Brexit, we've been the ones who are pushing Brexit. And now we have a mandate which shows that this is what the country really wants. So I think some of the more right-wing factions will be emboldened because they'll see the election results as a mandate. But on the other hand, because of the election results, because they took so many working class seats, there will be that sort of conflict as well. But I think we have to remember that actually a lot of these communities, they have sympathies with culturally conservative views as well. So um, we've seen kind of blue labour or whatever it's called, you know, coming up because they do want a leader who's patriotic, which they didn't see in Jeremy Corbyn. They kind of saw him as always against Britain. They're sympathetic towards kind of traditional do, views. Do, do, do you think, Mercy, that do you want Boris Johnson to calm down a bit? Do you want him to be less gaff prone? Do you want him to be 
somebody who looks as though he is slightly more circumspect in the judgments that he makes that maybe demonstrates slightly more care for historic institutions like the BBC or whatever? Or do you think it's important that he carries on being edgy? I mean, it's been said of Putin, I'm not comparing Boris to Putin, but it's said of Putin that Putin's governance style is basically summed up as always be interesting, never be predictable. And in a sense, Boris has an element of that about him. Do you think it's important that he continues to be like that? To an extent, that is a lot of his appeal. And where I do sort of see comparisons with Trump, I see very few, but where I do see them is the fact that he wears his heart on his sleeve, basically. And I think people appreciate that. So he's very obviously candid and very open and he can be very loose. And you want him to keep that? (laughs) There's a lot of appeal in that to a lot of people. But I think where he does need to be mindful, now that he's Prime Minister and now that he has such a large majority, not to cause so much offence, I think he can definitely do a lot of work in terms of causing offence. I think with Boris also, it depends on those around him because he's not really a details guy. I mean, he's very much a salesman. And this is where we come back to, inevitably, someone like Dominic Cummings, who's himself as a disruptor and in some ways uh, Boris is his chosen instrument for the disruption that he wants to say wreak uh, some people would say effect on on the British establishment which he's she he sees as dysfunctional and inefficient and certainly if you hear some of the stuff that's coming out um, over the last couple of days we, we are going to see big changes in the machinery of government and Whitehall you know and Boris Johnson will be part of that but whether Boris Johnson himself really cares that much about that kind of thing. I'm not so sure. I just want to add one more point to to something that Mercy said, which was, I think there is a belief on the part of some people in the Conservative Party that as long as they sort of throw a bit of value stuff to these working class voters, a bit of sort of red meat on immigration or something, it'll all be okay, and they don't have to do too much for them in terms of economic and and social policy. But it does seem now there are a lot of Conservative Party people arguing that actually, you know, that it can't be like that. That's not the equation that's going to work. They're actually going to have to do something for these people and that delivery, you know, competence is, is as important as, as the value stuff. But that's quite important, isn't it, Mercy? Because if you look at the Cameron record, for example, and austerity, there's no question that it impacted the poor hardest. There's no question that it was largely regressive in its impact, you know, the benefit squeeze, the cap on public sector pay, etc. It's difficult to see how such policies can be sustained. And that does mean a shift away from, certainly as, as Ian was implying, a shift away from traditional conservative economics into something which is more interventionist, more distributionist, which recognises the importance of the social fabric, for example. Yeah, and I think um, they will have to very much strike that balance. Boris has obviously positioned himself as somebody who does want to roll back austerity, and I think that will resonate with a lot of the communities that he's going to have to appeal to much more now. So I think rolling back austerity will definitely be a key thing for that. Labour manifesto, I think there's a feeling that they went a bit too far with their economic policies. Not in Labour ranks, it doesn't seem to be. <laughs> no, yeah. no, but from the from the Labour voters who switched to yes, Conservatives, yes. I think about 17%. Yeah. Meanwhile, back in the real world. <laughs> yeah, 17% said it was their economics and then over 40% said it was the leader who made them yeah. switch Conservatives. So I think we'll be about striking that balance between not rolling too far back that you lose the Conservative base, but rolling back 
back enough so that you can actually keep the basis that he's gained after the five years. But then what a lot of people said about the Labour manifesto, I would ask of the Conservatives now, where is the money going to come from in that every single economic analysis of Brexit suggests that it is going to lower the rate of growth. So that means Johnson is going to have to borrow, really, to to do what he wants to do. And also, I think there's a a slight fallacy on the part of some Conservatives and certainly Conservative commentators in thinking that somehow it's all about infrastructure, it's all about investing. Well, actually, if you build hospitals, you have to put staff in those hospitals. So current consumption is going to be big drag, I think, on on the Treasury. So they are going to, I think, really have to sort of fundamentally think about whether they can do this and and whether they can persuade people that they can. And that takes us back to the essence of populism, it seems to me, which is if events turn against the government, when events turn against the government, because being a government is just tough, it is the response, okay, we're going to have to adapt, we're going to have to respond, we're going to have to engage people in a kind of more open conversation about what we do in these challenging circumstances, or is it to double down and say the only reason we're going through this is because the Europe European Union or because of the BBC or because of migrants or, or whatever. So coping with events is it will be the test. Well, that's, that's what reveals whether or not you're a populist or not. If they respond to that by blaming immigrants or if there's some kind of racial rhetoric, then you'll see what I think would be a, the classic, Tim will correct me, that's the kind of classic populist response to, to trouble. But, I mean, Mercy, how, how likely do you think that is? What's your view? On, on, what's the, on, the, on the kind of Johnsonian or conservative attitude to immigration and to race? Well, to, for immigration in particular, I think, I mean, obviously their policies for an Australian-style points-based system and That's one of those word <laughs> phrases. It's one of those phrases yeah. that everyone uses and virtually nobody knows <laughs> yeah, what it means. Exactly. <laughs> I mean that. So I think the crux of that, how they've kind of positioned them, themselves and their policies, is that it's about fairness, and I think that has resonated. So this idea that they're restricting immigration, we're actually just making it fairer system for everybody. I think um, as long as they kind of continue with that characterisation, then, you know, I think that's going to work for them. Can we go back to this question that you raised before, Tim, which is the kind of story we're hearing about Dominic Cummings' desire to kind of really, you know, throw the Whitehall system up in there. Now, let's face it, Whitehall is not perfect by any means and you know it's also been laboring on under brexit for, for a long time all the talent's been sucked up in, in relation to that very often what i hear is that for, for cummings more anything else it's about pace he wants to be able to do things quickly he he finds the whitehall's capacity to slow things down to overcomplicate things deeply frustrating now pony blair went into whitehall saying he was going to transform it David Cameron, I mean, you remember Steve Hilton? And Steve Hilton left the system after two years saying it's everyone's fault except Steve Hilton's for the fact that he didn't manage to achieve very much at all. Do you think this is different from the fact that every prime minister says they're going to change Whitehall? Do you sense something different? And if it is, what would it be? Is there a model out there of of a different form of governance that could be adopted? Well, there probably are models all over the world. I mean, actually, as someone who lived and worked in New Zealand for a while, that would provide a model, actually, whether you're left or right in some senses, uh, of a more sort of contractually based civil service, sort of leaner, meaner civil service, but but not necessarily kind of right-wing projects, just a civil service that sort of does things better and people are in more appropriate places, etc. I, mean, I can see that. I can see Dominic Cummings, you know, might even look across at France, believe it or not, and think, well, actually, the amount of 
people who are employed in the civil service who are specialists in France greatly exceeds the number of people in the UK because we go for this more generalist civil service and we know he's very keen on science, etc. So, you know, there, there are kind of models from all over the world that he could draw on. I, I think he, in some ways, is an even more disruptive figure than, than Steve Hilton. I mean, I, I, I mean, Steve Hilton... Okay, he believed that stuff, but Dominic Cummings really <laughs> believes in this stuff, and he has the the kind of character, and and to be honest, has the kind of influence. Partly because he he won the you know the Leave referendum, and partly because he won them this election to you know give him I think a certain amount of sway over ministers. Um, it seems to be might that, otherwise I mean, just sort of reject this guy as a kind of you know slightly mad Rasputin figure, and as they did with Steve Hilton, you know see him off after two years. So it's funny, isn't it? Really, I mean, we, we, I want, want to turn to the all the opposition parties and the gap in the centre in a second. But what I'm kind of capturing to an extent in this conversation is that there is an ambivalence about this Johnson, but there's an, there's an openness to it in a sense. We have no choice. It's like, well, yeah, challenging Whitehall will be a good thing, but not if it turns into kind of Whitehall bashing and, and a kind of model which is completely unrealistic. Yes, it would be good to see a reorientation of policy around the thinking about the North and what matters to people in the North, but not if it's just a kind of crude, kind of populist attempt to buy those people off with a bit of symbolism. So, you know, these are going to be interesting times. And I think that for people who were really, what I find interesting is that people who were really hostile to Boris, they really thought he was a very evil, terrible, terrible man, are just having to say, OK, I've got to put that behind me now, whatever Boris was in the past, whatever he said in the past, because in a sense, something really interesting is going to start unfolding in the next few months. And the only attitude you can have to that is to watch it carefully rather than predetermine it. If you see what Dominic Cummings did with Michael Gove at education uh, versus the blob, which is a, a sort of typically populist yes. way of casting the education establishment, it perhaps wasn't as uh, effective as uh, some people think it was. And also, of course, Boris as Mayor of London thought up all sorts of grand schemes, but not many of them actually got delivered in the end. Well, we're going to find out. Now, back to the centre ground. Most this is a hard, it's a difficult question to ask you. What do you think the centre should be doing politically right now? I mean, Boris is probably going to lean out into that area at all. If you were, if you were on my side, my, historically my side of the argument, what would you be saying is the space for people who are deeming themselves to be progressive? I think that is a difficult question to answer, and to some extent, it will depend on how Labour re- brand themselves. Really, I think the Conservatives are a good space for those people at the moment, purely because Labour has lurched so far left. And because the Lib Dems, they're basically a non-entity now, they're not going to appeal to many people now. So I think it is difficult and I would be feeling politically homeless if I was centrist. And um, She's just trying to make us join the Conservative Party. <laughs> well, I think that you see, I think the interesting question is this. What we've talked about at the beginning of this programme is we talked about the thing everyone's talking about, which is, is the Labour Party going to stay true Corbynite or is it going to start a kind of Kinnock-type start march towards a, a, a more kind of mainstream position? But there's another argument, which is, is something new going to emerge in the progressive wing? And in the past, what I've talked about is a politics which particularly starts from the challenges of climate change and which is less about spending and pulling levers and is more about things like well-being, quality of life, communities, you know. Jeff Mulgan spoke at the RSA, the, the outgoing head of Nesta, and he pointed out that the happiness, the global happiness survey, that the strongest correlation between happiness and any other characteristic of a society, can you guess what it is here? Trust. Absolutely right. Well, nearly right, yes. Yeah. So it's basically 
whether you feel you can rely on people around Social you. trust, yeah. Social trust and connectedness. So that that's more important than equality. It's more important than income. So, you know, I'll start with you, Tim. I mean, it isn't just that the lay party has got to decide whether or not it's going to learn any lessons from the defeat, but it's also can the, the, the centre, whether you want to call it the progressive part of politics, whether it's the Greens or the Democrats, the Labour Party, can they develop a different story entirely in the face of how the world is changing and the issues that really matter to people? And it looks like the issues that are most important to whether people enjoy their lives. Yeah, I mean, that is a tough call, I think, in particular for the Labour Party, because although the focus is always on the huge Labour Party membership, actually, of course, the trade unions matter a great deal um, to the Labour Party. And to some extent, the trade unions are a break on developing that new kind of politics. The trade unions are kind of institutionalised in particular sectors, whether it be industrial or, or the public sector, and are therefore loathe, I think, to kind of move towards that kind of thing. I mean, as far as, you know, the Labour Party membership go, I would have thought quite a lot of them would be up for something like that, to be honest. I mean, you know, they're, they're kind of typically pretty middle class, reasonably well off. They have those kind of post-materialist concerns themselves. You know, they could go for, for something like that, I think. Um, and do you think it would appeal to young people, mostly that a kind of politics that's more to do with quality of life and well-being and in the context of sustainability and all of that? I mean, obviously, you're, you're different to many of your peers because you are a conservative and out and proud as a conservative. But do you think that would appeal or have a broader appeal, that kind of politics? Yeah, I definitely think it would. I mean, obviously, the environment is the issue that separates younger people from sort of the other age groups um, most significantly. So I think any party that kind of centres itself on well-being in a holistic sense will definitely have, you know, mass appeal for young people. I think the issue is that so many of the parties kind of tried that this election and it didn't necessarily materialise into, you know, electoral success. So it needs a leader. I mean it's not a politics that it needs a, it needs to be articulated exactly, by someone. Yeah. And it also needs to make sure it separates itself from the sort of you know, crystals and circle dancing yeah. kind of side of that that, yes. that agenda. Well, that's a branding challenge, Ian. What well, do you think is possible <laughs> to articulate that politics without ending up in circles I mean, and crystal dancing? Or yeah, I, it all sounds quite sort of abstract to me. And it's the kind of talk that Labour falls into after an election defeat. We start hearing about these big kind of lofty notions of trust and communities and how got to kind of look for different ways to make change outside of Parliament because we can't win enough MPs to actually make change. Oh um, so I'm looking forward to another like two years of that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I kind of I hear that. But I still think that if you think climate change is real, it is noticeable that it just did not surface in this election campaign at all. But this is a big challenge for Boris. You know, we are hosting the next round of the climate summit process. And, you know, we could make that a big national moment you know, we've got this target and all of that, or else it could be relegated behind Brexit and all sorts of yeah, other things. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think that is interesting because one thing, you know, Boris's Johnson's talk of infrastructure, etc., tends to be focused, at least, you know, as most people understand it, on, for example, road building. Now, if you moved off that towards... Green New Deal stuff like insulating houses, which actually would be a, a you know a very important thing to do. Then and then he could actually kind of command that ground as well as all sorts of other centre ground if he was bold enough to do he it. He can. I, I and I think you know who who was the, the one of the most effective kind of environmentalist ministers uh, of the last government was M Michael Gove. So I think again they they will incorporate that in you know if they're sensible. They're just proving themselves to be better at colonising the, the centre ground than than Labour are. But you know what's new. Let's turn to a final question, because anyone listening to this would absolutely know one thing, and they'd know that this is being recorded in England. Because, of course, if we were having this conversation in Scotland, we'd be talking very much about a looming polarisation challenge. So I'm just interested, both of you, Tim and Mercy, in your view about 
that. I mean, on the surface of it, the fact that most Scottish people want independence, that most people, in fact, I don't know anybody who thinks that an independence referendum would not be won by the independence side now, and the SNP did so well, and you have a Conservative government simply, simply saying no, that looks like a situation that could escalate. Yeah. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, I mean, it looks like they're set on a collision course. And while Boris Johnson, you know, has been very firm in saying he wouldn't grant, because it's up to the UK Parliament to grant um, Scotland a referendum, I'm not sure that position is sustainable over time, particularly if the SNP managed to win handsomely the, the 2021 Scottish Parliament elections uh, and therefore have a double mandate. They've you know, won so many MPs this time around and then they win that. They can point to opinion poll evidence perhaps at that point that there is demand for a referendum and demand for independence. I think it'd be very difficult for a British Prime Minister you know, having established the, the precedent under David Cameron that the Scots have got a right to self-determination to deny them that. And I don't think a British Prime Minister wants to get into the situation that we've seen in Spain where they're sending ah. in, you know, paramilitary police well, so Mercy, where do you think break Boris, up ballot boxes. Where, where, this is a big, this is a wide spectrum from David Cameron, if you want to go, go, to Spain, if you want to go and we don't want you to go, we're going to lock you up if you don't accept mm. it. Where do you think Boris is going to be in that spectrum? Well, I mean, if we're, unless something dramatic happens, we're going to leave by the 31st of you know January. I was going to say October, but that, that's long gone. So I think the question then becomes, if Scotland does vote to be independent, what then kind of... And I think the Conservatives are going to very much frame it as, or people who don't want Scotland to leave, who are unionists, they're going to frame it as Scotland will not survive outside of the United Kingdom. So that is, they're going to very much push that narrative. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's ironic on both sides because that's the kind of argument that, that Remain has made. But, but, but also from the Scottish point of view, I just think it's hard to argue that you know, we'll, be, we'll be better off on our own after arguing so passionately that we should be staying in the EU. This was something, by the way, that I thought should have been articulated much better by the Remainers in the EU campaign because the idea that being in the EU meant you couldn't have your own culture, your own policies, your own autonomy. It's ludicrous. Scotland's not only in the EU, it's in the UK, but yet it feels like a completely separate country. So, you know, it does look as though things are on a collision course, but in the end, can Scottish people be bothered when actually the UK does not really make a great deal of difference to your day-to-day life? We will find out. Mercy, Tim, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on the programme. We hope we'll have you back again in 2020 to see how things unfold. Just before we go... Uh, we end each episode with a provocation, something that shifted the way we look at the world. And often those provocations come from one of my favourite emails every week, which is your newsletter. And once again, it contains something fascinating this week. So tell us about the secret traits of successful people. Yeah, so this was just based on blog post, uh, essay, whatever, that I read by Paul Graham, who is an American entrepreneur and uh, just a very interesting thinker. And he said, look, you know, if you look at the traits of very high achieving people, there are things that we are used to talking about, like talent or or conscientiousness, luck and so on. But the thing I I think that comes up again and again and is slightly sort of underestimated is the ability to get obsessively interested in something for its own sake. So you see, you know, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg, you know, who's obsessively interested in, in coding, he turns it into a you know, multi-billion dollar business. There are plenty of other people who, who, who don't do that, but have that trait, which is to be able to take something and really, really get into it uh, over a sustained period of t- uh, time, a kind of narrow interest that they just really want to get into. And I thought it was really interesting. It's something that I've thought about in, in the past. And I, I don't think it's, I haven't seen it sort of named or, or talked about in the psychology literature, but, but that ability just to be 
interested in something and really get into it and sustain that it does seem not just a, something that's more likely to make you successful but also kind of good for your like it gives you a sense of purpose right and and, and these people who really get into things that just sort of feel, feel but do you have to have that as a leader or do you have to have as a leader is it enough to have people like that around you I would say the latter. I actually so leaders, I think, are are actually more effective when they're when they're generalists. Well, it can go either way. But but I do think that that if you are a generalist, you need specialists around you and specialists. Yeah, the the, the people who have that trait. And I would love, even if it's just you know, I would love my children to have that trait, right? But it's not something that you can teach or coach for. Unlike the other things we've been, you, you can you can kind of develop people's talents, you, you, you can help them to be more, more, more conscientious and more disciplined. But I think telling somebody that you need to just get obsessed by this, is just not something you can do. And so I think it really is, is perhaps the biggest kind of element of luck of all. I said goodbye to Tim and Mercy, but they're still here. So I'm gonna have to ask you both before we finished. Do you are you like that? Mercy, do you have an obsess? Is, is there something you have an obsessive interest in? Yeah, well, sadly, it's been politics. <laughs> right. um, so since I can remember, so... Okay, yeah. good. Tim? Well, apart from Strictly Come Dancing... Ah. Uh, were, you happy, were, you happy, were you happy with the outcome? I was, actually. Either of the two Ks winning yeah. would have been fine for me. So <laughs> Kelvin went as good. Uh, and, of course, well, I'm an academic, so obviously I am obsessed with politics, uh, just as Mercy is, but perhaps in a less practical way. We were going to talk about whether or not uh, Boris Johnson has that, <laughs> has that trait. He's obsessively interested in his own political advancement. That's his kind of single-minded obsession. But what's interesting to me is that if if a system, if a democracy is is functioning like reasonably well, then actually that can work out well. If he succeeds, which is you know big if uh, over the next few years, his kind of uh, obsessive interest in his political advancement will now mean giving much more attention to some of those communities in those northern seats that didn't get any attention for the you know much attention for the last twenty years. So, yeah, that's kind of Adam Smith's invisible hand, really, in a way, isn't right. it? Just you know, it might not be in his particular interest in terms of the sort of emotional political side of it to, to help all those people but if as a byproduct of his, <laughs> his ambition exactly. that's what happens then you know who's to argue with it well we are going to find out that's it for this episode of Polarise we'll be back again in two weeks time if you've enjoyed this episode please tell someone about it we'd really appreciate it if you took two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app Polarise was presented by me, Matthew Taylor. And me, Ian Leslie. The producer was Craig Templeton-Smith and we were brought to you by the RSA. RSA.